This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So the topic of today's Dhamma talk is wise decision-making. We make so many decisions and choices that affect every direction and every sort of direction that our life goes down. And there sometimes seems to be crossroads. Will I take this job or that one? Will I live in this location or go there? Will I move when my partner gets a different job in a different city or will we separate? Will I purchase or will I rent? For the day-to-day -day dilemmas that we face about what we will do, sometimes the term choices is really more appropriate than decisions. And I looked up what choice meant and what decision meant in the dictionary. And choice seemed to imply a selection between alternatives, a kind of personal preference. I choose this option over that option. I like this one over that. I'm going to do this rather than that. But kind of a sense of just choosing between various options based upon what we like, what we don't like, what we're inclined towards. Whereas the term decision implied a judgment, a resolution of conflict, a kind of strength and reflection to it. It had a firmness that came through considering the various factors that were involved, weighing the various alternatives and which one would likely lead to this or to that, and then making a decision that we really align our life's energies with. But for most of our individual acts that get us through the day, we don't really make any major decisions. It's not something that requires a big consideration or huge judgment calls. It's not so much a question about analyzing the various possibilities or seeing really what something is um, going to lead to. We just select from the different options at hand and perhaps then hope for the best. It's rare to find an inner pull so strong that it stops us in our tracks and says, this you must do. This is kind of like a profound calling or a clear certainty. This is the right thing to do. Most choices we stumble through just the best that we can in rather limited, uncertain, fragmented, and habitual ways. You've probably all gone to a restaurant, looked at the menu, and had to make a choice, had to select something. Now sometimes it's tempting to just ask the wait person, what do you recommend, and say yes, because it's sometimes hard to make a selection or a choice. For some people, even choosing a dish on the menu is an agonizing experience. A burrito or a taco or an enchilada or fajitas. Oh, they all sound good. 
But it's not so much that they all sound good. Often, what's painful about the choice is that it's which loss would be less painful. Because if I choose the enchiladas, then I don't get the burrito. Now, do I want the chicken with pesto sauce or the spaghetti with tomato sauce? Which will I regret less? Sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves when we make choices because we identify ourselves with the choices that we make. The construction of our self-concepts depends upon desire. As we move towards the things we like and the things that we dislike, we are creating a sense of who we are. And so even some very simple everyday choices keep reinforcing a sense of ourselves. Every selection that turns our lives towards one thing simultaneously is turning us away from something else. And in that turning, we create patterns, routines, we create what's familiar to us. And that reproduction of a pattern of preference gives us a foundation to build a sense of self upon. We identify ourselves with our choices. We think that we are a collection of our preferences. Every choice has an implied sacrifice, an inherent loss. Even regarding very trivial matters, this can be very confusing and painful to some people. I don't know how many of you have had somebody at some point in your life tell you, you have to make certain sacrifices. Has that been said? I've been told that a few times in my life. You have to make certain sacrifices. I think it's a very interesting statement because each time I heard it, it was very clear to me that the decision had already been made. I knew what my priorities were. It was just that I didn't want the loss to occur. I was resisting the loss, but I actually had already made the decision. For example, it took me a very long time to graduate from college. Primarily, in fact, specifically, because I was spending so much time on retreat that I accumulated a great deal of incompletes and I had to keep making them up. So instead of graduating in four years, it took me over five years to get my undergraduate degree. And then the same thing happened when I went for a master's, which should have been completed in two years. And it took me almost three years because I kept going on three-week retreats in the middle of a quarter. And the professors, for some reason, didn't like that. And multiple times, my dean said, my advisor said, my teacher says, you have to make certain sacrifices. And I think they thought that that meant that I shouldn't go on the retreats. But whenever I heard that, I knew that my decision had already been made and that the sacrifice was that my formal education was going to be slow and long and painful, or it wasn't going to happen at all. You know, it's just I had already made that decision. Now, I did continue, I did pursue, I did get my two formal degrees. It just took longer than expected. But a similar thing happened when I went for a training program. 
um, after this, um, I went for a training program because there was a form of bodywork that I was very interested in. And it was a three-year training program, um, five days a week, um, only half day. So I thought, okay, half day, I can handle that. You know, I can still, I was, I was already teaching Dhamma at the time. Um, so I started the program and um, it was three years and I figured, I'll bet I could do it in five years. And so I thought, okay, I can handle that. So, but about a year and a half in, the um, directors of the program sat me down and said, you have to make some sacrifices. <laughs> and I thought, I know, but there was no way I was going to sacrifice either my teaching practice or my retreat practice in order to do this, um, this training, even though I would have loved to have both in my life. But for them, it wasn't tolerable at that point. And so it would, they were okay for the first year and a half, but they said, no, if I wasn't willing to um, do it every day, for, you know, rather than keep making up, um, then I had to drop out. So I dropped out. But what was clear to me was that sometimes I didn't recognize the choices that I had already made until I heard that externally. You have to make some sacrifices. And it was very clear to me what had to be lost. And I tend to like to keep everything on my plate. You know, I really like to have my cake and eat it too. And I wouldn't mind having an extra cake on the side too. <laughs> You know, that's just my personality. I just don't see why. I can't try to have everything. And every once in a while, life stops us and says, no, you have to make some sacrifices. And then it requires the willingness to recognize what our priorities are, what the underlying decision is and direction of our lives. And I think we've mostly, for the most part, know what that is and have already made it. It's just we're juggling different things and trying to kind of have our cake and eat it too. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. There's a story that I've used several times because I really like this image of a, of a, um, a, a business school professor who put out on, the de on his desk one day a, an empty jar. And then he took a bag of rocks and poured it in the jar. And he asked his class, is the jar full? And they said, yes. Hmm. So he said, hmm. And he pulled out another bag of little pebbles. And he poured them in, and they fit in between the rocks. And he said, is it full now? Well, now they didn't answer. And so then he pulled out another bag of gravel and poured it in, and then finally water. And then he asked the students what the lesson was, and one of them said, this shows you can always fit more into your schedule than you think you can. <laughs> but the professor said, no, that wasn't the point. The lesson here is that you have to put the biggest stones in first. We have to know our priorities. We have to know what's most important to our, to our lives and put those in place first and then fill in everything else in the cracks. And I think for meditators, that, mean, that may mean that we put our practice first. It doesn't mean that's the only thing we do in our lives, but it may mean that we do it before we leave the house in the morning so that we've kind of put that kind of 
big rock in. We've taken care of something that was important to us. It may mean that we block out time every year for retreats or that we make a commitment to come to, to uh, programs like this on Saturdays so that each month we have a day long to just settle in and experience some silence. The real question is not if you have decided to sit for 45 minutes a day, but if you have decided to cultivate your mind, if you have decided to realize the truth of things, if you have decided to look inward. And when we recognize that we really have made some commitments in our life, to be willing to look into our minds, to cultivate the spiritual life, and sense that that is a priority for us. It takes a lot of the stress out of the various decisions, out of the various choices that we make after that. Because then there are so many choices that we can make that just support a decision that we're already committed to. So we can consider decisions in terms of the actions that we do, or we can consider decisions in terms of what we believe to be true, what we stand for, what we consider to be significant. And I want to address this second approach first. And even though it's a bit of a chicken and egg issue, perhaps we can see that sometimes the direction that we set for our life is what determines the various choices that we make. It asks us to consider what influences our fundamental perspective and what sets the range of choices and options that we can see. Sometimes it feels like we have a wide range of options and sometimes we have a very narrow range. What affects the potential choices that we can make? There are two primary discourses of the Buddha that relate to the questions really of what do we believe and how do we know what we believe? How do we make the various fundamental choices that set a direction in our development? And these are the Kalama Sutta and the Chanki Sutta. Both of them were referred to in Rahula's book. The questioner in um, both of these suttas was skeptical and somewhat confused. Both of these um, included teachings that were given to people who were not followers of the Buddha. They were not practitioners of his teachings. And I think it's important to recognize this context because these were not the teachings that the Buddha gave to his own monks and nuns and lay followers. And uh, the, the decision, the, the instructions may differ somewhat for someone who has already established some degree of faith or conviction in the path or has had some degree of awakening to the truth of things, to the way things are, who has looked into their minds and seen things as they are. In the Kalama discourse, we find that the Buddha went to a village that was near a kind of um, active crossroads. And the villagers, um, in this, Kalama, this village of the Kalamas uh, 
they were not dedicated to the Buddhist teachings. And in fact, they, because they were at a crossroads, they had a lot of teachers passing through, standing up on their various soap operas, soap boxes, giving, um, giving teachings. And often they were saying, my way is right. This is the way that's true. All those other ways are wrong. And the Kalamas didn't know what to believe, whether it was this teacher or that teacher, who was really showing the right way. And it seems that they asked questions or were confused, particularly about issues related to Kama and rebirth. But interestingly, the Buddha's reply did not give them a teaching specifically on what they should believe about Kama and rebirth. Instead, he invited them to examine the criteria upon which they form beliefs. He said, it is fitting for you to be perplexed, O Kalamas. It is fitting for you to be in doubt. Doubt has arisen in you about a perplexing matter. Come, Kalamas. Do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teachings, by hearsay, by collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by inferential reasoning, by reflection on reasons, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think this ascetic is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. So he set forth a criteria of the reason somebody should not adopt a view, a perspective, a way, a, a direction in life. And it should not be out of oral tradition or because of a lineage of tradition or because it was widely stated or because it was written in books and scriptures or because it is reasonable and logical or through um, inferring and drawing conclusions or thinking it out, not also through acceptance or convictions of, through a theory or because of the competence of the speaker or respect for the teacher. The Buddha explained to the Kalamas that a person whose thoughts are controlled by greed, hate, and delusion, because of one's thoughts being controlled by greed, hate, and delusion, one's actions will lead to harm. That person will destroy life, take what's not given, engage in sexual abuse, and lie. And those actions will lead to suffering for a long time. But the person who is freed from greed, hate, and delusion will find that their thoughts are not controlled by these tendencies, and they will live and act in a way that does not cause suffering. And I find this discourse to be very interesting, because rather than answering the questions directly about Kama, and rather than putting forth his own view of how things are and trying to convince the villagers to become his followers or to adopt 
his perspective on things. He taught simply that undertaking and practicing virtue leads to one's welfare and happiness. When we're taking a position or expressing our belief about the Dhamma or holding a belief or a view about Kama or considering even how things are, the Buddhist teachings ask us to ignore the way the teachings are presented. To ignore our emotional feeling about it, or the desire for belonging, the charisma of the speaker or the authority of the teacher, and the reliance on logical reasoning and argument. To ignore all the self-constructions and social relationships. This is a broad list, and it's something to keep a watch out for if we are sometimes seduced into believing something because it was presented in such a beautiful way, or because we felt so good, we were emotionally touched and moved by the presentation, or because we wanted to belong to that group. We wanted to be a part of it. Or because it just made logical sense. Instead, the Buddha gave us some suggestions for what to reflect upon in order to come to a, a, a perspective. He said, consider, will this lead to harm or to benefit? Much simpler than all those other various social or interpersonal constructions. Simply to reflect, will this lead to harm or benefit? So we consider how we come to our decisions and how we choose what we will do what are our intentions that lead to our actions? In the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha said, Monks, a wise person, one of great wisdom, does not intend harm to self, intend harm to others, or intend harm to both self and others. Thinking in this, in this way, such a one intends benefit for self, benefit for others, benefit for both, benefit for the whole world. Thus is one wise and of great wisdom. Now I trust that we all intend well, but it's easy enough to have an ideal vision of what ethical conduct is. But it's equally important to observe where our intentions lead and notice what are the results of our actions. So we don't just walk around thinking that we are good enough people, but we actually learn and refine our actions through observing what leads to happiness and what leads to harm. I don't want to idealize ethical decisions because I think we make choices every day and there is an underlying ethic to the decisions and the choices that we make. When we're stressed, when we're tired, when we're threatened, when we're pressured, 
our ethical commitments are going to be tested. And it's sometimes in those moments that we will get the greatest insight into our own underlying tendencies. And when we see our underlying tendencies sometimes shifting into greed or into aversion or into self-concepts, the delusion of self-fabrication, there's no need to judge ourselves for that. It just means we're not enlightened. Surprised? <laughs> so we're not enlightened. Now we can look at that and we can work with it. So we don't need to be ashamed of it. We don't need to beat ourselves up and judge ourselves for it. But we do need to look at it clearly. Otherwise, we won't take the next step in the path of enlightenment, and we will remain equally unenlightened instead of learn something and have taken at least one more step on that path. The Buddha described right and wrong actions with a list of 10 actions divided into three categories. Actions of bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts. Now the wholesome bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts are simply by abstaining from the unwholesome bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts. So it makes it really easy. That act of abstaining from doing harm is an important act. So considering bodily acts, of course the main three areas won't surprise you. Destroying life, stealing, and hurtful sexual acts are the three unwholesome bodily acts. And the Buddha described these. There is a person who destroys life. He is cruel and his hands are bloodstained. He is bent on slaying and murdering, having no compassion for any living being. He takes what is not given, appropriates with thievish intent, the property of others, be it in the village or the forest. He conducts himself wrongly in matters of sex. He has intercourse with those under the protection of father, mother, brother, sister, relatives or clan or of their religious community, or with those promised to a husband protected by law, and even those betrothed with a garden, with a garland. In this way, tainted failure of living is threefold in bodily acts. You know, even this very first precept to refrain from killing can be understood in a variety of ways. Does this mean that all killing is wrong and that we, can, we must never kill another living being? What about for food? What about in your garden? What about for research? For self-defense? For national defense? For the defense of someone you love? For financial gain? For self-image? Where do you draw the line? And on what basis have you made that decision? Is it out of adherence to a view? a belief, an ideology? Is it out of adherence to, um, or is it out of respect for an authority, conformity to a tradition, acceptance of a code of ethics? Is it out of the desire for personal gain or personal respect? 
Is it just convenience, custom, or greed? When we undertake the precept to refrain from killing and train ourselves not to kill, this is based upon a deeper decision, and that decision is to free the mind from hatred and cruelty. We don't just make a commitment to not kill. That's just the superficial level of the training. That's where we draw the line. That's where we say, I won't just swat that mosquito because it flew by me. We make the, dis we, the real decision is the commitment to not act on any intention that is rooted in cruelty or in hatred. If we want to free our minds from this underlying tendency of hatred and cruelty, then we make that decision. And then that will affect the various choices that we make when a fly lands on our, um, on our toast or when an ant walks across our, um, our table. Regarding stealing, the phrase in the Buddhist teaching says that one will refrain from taking what is not given. This is a decision to free the mind from selfish greed and a willingness to live with simplicity, with contentment, and with generosity. Now, with verbal acts such as... Um, various speech acts. I won't go into a lot of detail with this because a couple of months ago I gave a talk on a Saturday about relationships, roles, and communication, and we looked specifically at different ways of working with right speech. But suffice to say that there are four unwholesome verbal acts. One has to do with speaking dishonestly, so it would be lying, deceptive speech, false speech. The second is a kind of uh, mean speech, so that would be divisive or malicious speech. The third is a harshness to it, so harsh or abusive speech. And the fourth is a kind of frivolous chatter, gossip, or just untimely, useless talk. I think many of you have been working with your speech acts, because we've been speaking in interviews, and I've been hearing some very insightful observances and practices that you're doing to clarify and to bring forth a, a, a wholesome quality to your speech. It's helpful to reflect not only on how you engage in speech, but to notice what the effect of your speech acts are and what views, what attitudes, and what beliefs do those speech habits arise from? Is your speech fairly straightforward and honest, or does it feel a little twisted or a little bit deceptive? Does it support clarity or ease of mind? Do you feel fresh and clear after speaking, or does it circle back feeling like, why did I say that? That wasn't quite right. I didn't quite mean that. What will they think I should have said? You know, the, those kind of worrisome thoughts that sometimes creep in when our speech isn't very clear. Or is our speech a cause for turmoil and regret? 
or does it bring joy to our lives? When we talk, we express so much more than the content of our words. We express many things. We might be reinforcing a particular position in the relationship of authority or of respect. Speech can strengthen a sense of ourselves by um, argumentation or justification. Do you speak to align yourself with any particular community, any particular worldview or ideology? Or do you rely upon either rationality or emotional persuasion, or perhaps even quotes from famous people to augment your view, to give your words more substance? It's worth reflecting on the various um, categories that the Buddha warned the Kalamas against to consider if you've adopted any beliefs that, are, are, that um, come through um, a false way of adopting something as true. The choice to speak or to not speak is something that we bring mindful attention to every day in our interactions. But the deeper question in this training is not how to talk nicely, but to consider the strength of our decision to develop clarity and truth. Now in a small group recently, Jennifer actually mentioned a um, acronym, if I can share, THINK. She said um, somebody had told her about this acronym, THINK BEFORE YOU SPEAK. You've probably heard that, THINK BEFORE YOU SPEAK. So we considered what the T, the H, the I, the N, the K stand for. THINK. Let speech be timely, honest, insightful, necessary, and kind. Now, isn't that a nice um, acronym to help us remember to bring timely, honest, insightful, necessary, and kindness into our speech acts? Now, with mental acts, there are three unwholesome mental acts, covetousness, ill will, and wrong views. Now, these three unwholesome mental acts lead to a lot of suffering and inner turmoil. If you've made the decision to uproot these tendencies, then the choice to do or not do many daily actions is going to be much clearer and easier. How do you care for and protect the quality of your mind? That's the underlying question. For example, do you use intoxicants that distort attention? If you do, what's the motivation for using intoxicants? When you make the various choices, consider what is your intention? Are you pulled by desire for pleasure, conformity, health? And what is the effect of using intoxicants? Does it induce sleepiness? 
relaxation? Does it sustain your energy, heighten your sensations, bring forth um, a dullness or hallucinations? For some people, just a little bit of wine will reduce their inhibitions, will help them to not only relax, but loosen up, get a little silly, maybe even sleepy. That, for them, might be enough intoxication to violate the precept. It may not be socially wrong, but if you've made the decision to cultivate mindfulness and clarity, and you're very susceptible to alcohol, then perhaps even one glass of wine will not support your aim for clarity. Somebody else might be able to drink multiple glasses of wine, and honestly look at their experience and find that it does not produce those effects. We have to look at, those, at our motivation and consider the effects really honestly. In the Diga Nikaya, the Buddha said, there are six dangers attached to addiction to strong drink and sloth-producing drugs. Waste of money. Increased quarreling, <laughs> liability to sickness, loss of good name, indecent exposure of what one says and does, and weakening of intellect. It's not really so different now than it was then, right? But what about the use of sacred medicines, peyote, and other substances that might be used for accessing somewhat spiritual experiences? Does the context of a sacred journey or a structured shamanic experience validate the use of chemical or natural substances? Or would this, too, be a breach of the precept? I think we have to consider this question carefully for ourselves. I have thought about it a great deal, and I personally have grave concerns that the use of drugs of any kind might, uh, uh, recreational drugs, sometimes we need prescription medicines. I'm not saying don't take your antibiotics <laughs> or your aspirin or whatever you're prescribed. But I have grave concerns that the use of drugs um, might, you know, recreational drugs or even some of these hallucinogenics um, might be a factor that prevents deep concentration and liberating insights. The use of substances is usually based on pleasure-seeking and craving. And whether it's the daily consumption of alcohol or caffeine or nicotine or beer and wine for relaxation or marijuana periodically or stronger drugs, narcotics or hallucinogenics, without the craving and the desire for pleasure, I just don't know why anybody would use them. How can you use them without wanting to reach for pleasure and for out of craving. I've heard many people say that they use um, drugs for, um, out of a shamanic motivation to experience um, uh, altered states and to get access to a sp more spiritual experience. But I think the Buddhist path asks us to really reflect on our motivation and to see if that really is our motivation, and what is going on there. 
there are many um, substances that pose a real danger of destabilizing the mind because we understand so little about how drugs affect the subtleties of consciousness. Sometimes the risk is very high. The, Buddhist, the Buddha did not give us commandments, though. He gave us training guidelines. So we must each consider our motivations and the effects and the various risks for ourselves. We must consider what we wish to do and what we do not wish to do. What the Buddha taught was to consider carefully how we make a decision. What are the underlying tendencies and intentions that draw us toward a particular choice? Are we doing it to conform? Are we doing it to enhance greed? Why are we doing it? If it is based on craving, ill will, delusion, fear, greed, then it is surely leading to harm. We bring mindfulness to our intentions. We make wise commitments. We watch our actions, the actions of body, speech, and mind, and we learn by observing the results. How skillful did that choice actually turn out to be? We make so many choices. We try them out. We're not going to learn if we don't try things out. We don't know everything perfectly before we, um, we, we, we try them out. So we try something out, and then we look back and we see, what was really the effect of that? Did it support our deepest aspirations and goals? Ethical living and wise decision-making invites deep reflection. Our in with deep reflection, our incremental choices over time become more and more skillful. We make some big decisions in our lives. We sense what our priorities are. And then we make many, many little choices that come out of that. And both with the choices and with the big decisions, we can reflect what is the effect. We can't control these effects. They say once the glass is dropped, it's dropped. There isn't anything you can do. But we have to accept the consequence. In the next moment, we have another opportunity to respond to that. How are we going to work with that? When we've dropped the glass and it's spilled on the floor, now are we going to get angry or are we just going to clean it up and hold it differently the next time? This, in the Sutta Nipata, the Buddha said, what people expect to happen is always different from what actually happens. From this comes great disappointment. This is the way the world works. We must be willing to accept whatever occurs as a consequence from our decisions and learn from it. Regrets occur when we don't take responsibility for the underlying decisions. And we're trapped by looking at, if only I had done this, if only I had done that. I want to end with the words of one Vipassana teacher which I considered to, to be real words of wisdom when I heard it. Um, the teacher is Michelle McDonald, and she said, Wisdom 
is the gradual lowering of expectation. We can't expect ourselves to be perfect, but we can um, try to clarify the decisions that we make and encourage ourselves to enjoy the practice of reflecting and refining our acts of body, speech, and mind. So let's have a moment or two of silence, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.